Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. Many hands were needed to help in the transition for the immense number of Afghans that fled Afghanistan with the fall of the government there to the Taliban last year. Among those answering the call was Sahar Taman, providing legal assistance to the 13,000 Afghans located to Fort McCoy in the middle of Wisconsin last fall. The personal situations and the legal requirements were complex, demanding deeply dedicated work of both the heart and head. Fortunately, Sahar's education and experience with budget formulation and policy with the OMB, with the Religion and Society Dialogue Program at the National Peace Foundation, and as a newly minted lawyer, all combined to equip her for the daunting and vital task with Operation Allies Welcome and Welcoming New Neighbors. Sahar is also Executive Director of the Mahmoud S. Taman Foundation. There are some choice excerpts from this visit which couldn't fit into our 55-minute program, so look for them on northernspiritradio.org. Many thanks to Andrew Jansen for production assistance today. Sahar Taman joins us in person for today's program. Sahar, it's wonderful to have you back again for Spirit in Action. Thank you very much for having me, Mark. People have heard your voice three times on Spirit in Action, but the last time I actually did an interview with you was, I think, 2010, maybe 2008, right around then. And then I was interviewing you about the religion and society exchange, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I realize you've gone on to other employment since then, other avocation for your life. But you went to law school. Yes, um, I decided to go to law school in 2018. I was 56 years old, and I finished the end of 2020, so 59, and then I managed to pass the bar and became a licensed attorney in 2021. I'm glad I did it. (laughs) It was very hard, but I'm glad I did it. And you did that just in time to start helping out with our Afghan neighbors, the refugees from Afghan and the whole change there. Why did you decide to become a lawyer? You know, probably I should have done it a long time ago. It's also my nature. I've always wanted to help people and have been helping people with the rather technical type of things. I've never practiced law before. I should clarify that. But, you know, I come from an immigrant community myself. And so in the immigrant communities, there's always how do you do this and how do you do that? And it's just sort of the nature of the field has come natural to me. So I'm glad I did this and had this opportunity to do so in my life. And I imagine you had to buttress your knowledge of immigration law to be able to do the work that you've been doing to welcome our Afghan neighbors. Was that a whole nother crash course in the law? Or maybe you'd already studied that area sufficiently? So in law school, immigration law is kind of an optional course or courses that you can take. I I actually didn't 
take such a course at my law school. So it was a crash course when I learned that there would be 13,000 people coming from Afghanistan evacuated and they'd be coming right to Fort McCoy. And I thought to myself, you know, I know what they need for sure. <laughs> They're definitely going to need legal assistance and specifically immigration. So it was a crash course, first month or so, definitely. And, and actually, it still continues to be so because it's been a very interesting historical event in so many levels, including, you know, what is happening within our immigration system and what options are for immigration right now in the United States for our Afghan neighbors. Wow, I imagine it's a total revolution since just 2018. During the term where Donald Trump was in office, I imagine a lot of doors were really closed that are open now. So is the law evolving that way too? It's not just federal policy, but what's been happening that's been changing? So I can't really comment so much historically on law, but there had to be a lot of policy changes. So for example, when our Afghan guests, we call them guests respectfully in at Fort McCoy came in, many people did not have documents. Some had passports, some had a national idea, which is called a Tuskira. Some of those were electronic, some of those were paper, and some people had no documents. So one of the policy questions was, how do you sort of regularize documentation for this large group? We had 13,000 at Fort McCoy, and there were so many others in seven other bases. So it was about the number, I don't know, 80-some thousand, 76,000. So one of the first policy decisions was to have everyone apply, and then they were issued a work permit, which is called an EAD, Employment Authorization Document. That document is typically something that you would get after you make an application. For example, you would first need to apply for an immigration status like asylum, then I think there's a need to wait a year, and then you would get your employment authorization. Instead, for whatever practical reasons, our parolees have received their work permits, applied and received their work permits really quickly. So that's just an example of the kinds of policy decisions had to be made. Other types of technical decisions were changed. I mean, it was really a very interesting to see that laid out. The government had to move fast. You know, in the beginning, it was, you know, there were high level decisions being made. What are the pros and cons of that? Uh, it was very interesting to see the government make those decisions, having to work together. You know, it was an interagency between the Department of State and the Department of Homeland Security, specifically the United States Citizenship and Immigration Services, USCIS, had to work together to figure out some of these things. I'm afraid I would go completely crazy trying to work with that many bureaucratic offices. Your first form of employment, your first avocation maybe was in budget management and such. I have a feeling that prepared you to be able to do this. My first career, I have a, a policy degree, a master of public policy, and that allowed me at the time early on when public policy was rather a new field, you know, it was a multidisciplinary field. I worked at the executive office of the president, the office of management and budget. So OMB designs and builds our budget. And it's not 
like, you know, the, the Treasury Department. So formulates the budget. And so I, I had an opportunity, again, you get to see there how many government entities work together, how people define and, you know, demand and say, this is what we really need, you know, the whole process. So it was kind of pulling me back into how government agencies can work together or cannot work together. And, 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 I, and I think I saw a lot of both when I was working. So that was your first career. Mm -hmm. You're working with agencies and visions that are being synthesized into something. But then you went on to your second religion and society exchange, which I interviewed you back about 12 years ago. That was part of your second career. How do you describe your second career? Well, I, I, first of all, I'm really lucky to have had those opportunities in my life to do multiple things that I love. I describe that as working in international education. The first part of that was where I worked with professionals, providing them opportunities to see it through exchanges and to educate each other and themselves about in this particular case, it was about interfaith dialogue. And then later on, I worked in international education with youth. And that was in many countries around the world, but it was through a particular State Department program. And also had this amazing opportunity. And I was really honored to mentor youth to help them develop their own leadership, really. Those were wonderful experiences. <laughs> Well, one of those wonderful experiences was, and I'm sorry, I don't know actually how to pronounce her name. She was a 2011 Nobel Peace Prize recipient. Tawakul Karman, how, how would you pronounce it yeah, correctly? Yeah, it's, it's Tawakul Karman. Tawakul Karman. And you had spent some intensive time with her, wrote an article about it that I read. Mm -hmm. I have a feeling that in some way, the experience from this woman from Yemen, who I think was dealing with the tumultuous world in the same way that our Afghan guests were, that somehow this prepared you for this next step. Tell me a little bit about Tawakul Karman. I think we're talking about 2008, and she was one of the civic society leaders in Yemen at the time. She was a journalist and had created an organization called Journalists Without Chains, uh, along the lines of, you know, Doctors Without Borders. And they were advocating for the freedom of the press, including the right to create privately owned radio stations, which didn't exist in Yemen. She just was this um, woman with this amazing charisma. As we got to know each other, she told me that she would go to protests at the time. And of course, protests in a very police state like Yemen were very difficult to participate in. There were lots of repercussions, but she would go in and uh, her husband would be with her. And she said, I'd go first. And they wouldn't hit me, but they would hit my husband. And that was the reason he came with me so that when we got up to the stage, I would be able to speak. She said, I would just lead and I find people coming behind me afterwards. <laughs> So when she won the Nobel Peace Prize in 2011, in many ways, she was a representative of all the civil society activists that had in the Arab world participated in what came to be known as the Arab Spring, this protest and revolution and demands from youth in many of the Arab countries that said, well, we don't, we don't want the current situation and we want to participate in our country's decision-making process. So she was like a representative of many. That's how I see Tawakal. And she actually received that uh, along with what? Ellen Johnson Sirleaf and Yema Gabawi? Two African women leaders, yes. So it was shared both in uh -huh. the general intent and in specific. 
We're leading up to really some of the depth of the work that you've been doing with our Afghan guests. First, I had a very strange little quirky question that I have is, I was used to referring to such people as Afghanis, and that is evidently not the way you do it. De rigueur, we refer to them as Afghans. Now, why the change? What's that about? I, I missed something. I just think the noun of person in English is Afghan. There has been this use of the word Afghani, which is actually a reference to the currency. So that's actually what it's known in, in Afghanistan. The currency is called the Afghani. So it's just a correction that the noun of person is Afghan. And of course, the country is Afghanistan. You can, I think, use descriptors like Afghani food, I think, or Afghan food. I think either of those are correct, but the noun of person is definitely clearly Afghan. Folks, we have the wonderful location of having Sahartman here today for Spirit in Action. I've interviewed her before, but today we're going to be talking about Afghan refugees, Afghan guests as we deal with them here, the people who needed to leave Afghanistan, many of them fearing for their lives and certainly for their well-being. And fortunately, Sahar was well-placed to be a, one of the helping hands. And there's so many of them, many hundreds and thousands of people, actually, who've helped out. But we're going to get a little bit of picture of that as we talk with Sahar. If you come to the northernspiritradio.org website, we'll have links that'll help you connect up with this work that Sahar has been involved in. Perhaps we can dive into that now, Sahar. First of all, you only recently finished your law degree and then immediately you launched in this. I think you have a law office or you did have a law office down in Illinois where you, that's where you passed the bar. So you went to school in Virginia, you passed the bar down in Illinois, and now you've got your office in Wisconsin. I'm a little bit confused. Yeah, I have a virtual law practice, which is now becoming more and more common. So I have an Illinois license because uh, the reason I took the bar exam there, it is part of among the states that accept the universal bar exam. So scores from the UBE universal bar exam can be transferred to other states should there be a need in the future. Right now, Wisconsin doesn't participate in that. So I just wanted to see what are my options in the future. So I have an Illinois license, but immigration law is federal law. And so as long as an attorney has a license in a state, they can practice really from any locale. So I guess what happened is I heard, I think it was the end of July, right? Or uh, maybe the beginning of August that Fort McCoy would be one of the spaces, which were military spaces that would be safe havens for our Afghan guests, 13,000 people. And, and like I said, I said, you know, this is probably going to be like a refugee camp, but unlike refugee camps that might happen in other parts of the world, the number one thing that they might need is immigration status adjustment. Because I just knew that you're already in the side of the United States, you're, something's going to need to happen in terms of immigration legal status. So I found my way to be able to be there and really created the legal clinic, the entity that was part of Operation Allies Welcome, which is what the United States government called the project, Operation Allies Welcome or AOW. The was a conglomerate of organizations. I'd mentioned the federal government, also the Department of Defense, and then a series of NGOs or basically international NGOs, including the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops. And this was the organization that had been contracted to do the legal work 
on all of the bases and of the safe havens, and as well as to do another set of, of work, which is to provide morale, welfare, and recreation for the Afghan guests during their stay. So the legal clinic, I think it was September 1, and I drove up, and there had been a couple people that are trying to figure out what to do, but the first day it was open and just gave a presentation and realized uh, shortly after that that's not exactly what our guests needed to hear at that point. We needed to know what was going on. We needed to know who they were. We needed to know what their needs were. We found Americans, United States citizens who were there. They were there because they had family members who had a need to regularize the immigration status before they left. We also, you know, didn't know other things needed to go on. There needed to be vaccinations, specifically COVID. There were people who had tested positive for COVID and they were put into another location on the camp and, you know, quarantined. There was a medical processing that needed to be going on. I described earlier. So we recognized that this situation was basically an emergent situation. And from day one, I said, whatever we're doing here is going to need to change. And not just what we were doing in the legal clinic, but throughout the entire task force, throughout the entire base, throughout the entire safe haven over time. The first few days, I just wanted to reflect now that, you know, it's, this is over. It went on for five and a half months for me. I was there from day one until the last day. We closed the legal clinic on February 11. The first few days there, I think I would just sort of at the end of the day, just come and be in a state of shock, you know, seeing so many people displaced. He was clearly displaced. They ended up in a military base. There were soldiers around. The soldiers were actually very, very kind. They were in charge of every barracks. Uh, there were people living in the barracks that were, you know, 20, 30 people on a floor. There was no division of space. It wasn't apartments. And every night I just sort of be in a state of shock. I think I just come home and just sit there thinking, you know, what is happening? Why do people have to just flee? You know, many people, like they said, just got on an airplane with nothing. I mean, they had their clothes and we talk to people and say, well, where's your passport? Well, I was told to destroy it. Well, where, you know, United States citizen came and he had 10 passports that were in a piece of luggage that no one knew where they were. It was just people coming with questions and questions and questions, and we had no answers. At one point, I was talked to one of my colleagues and I said, you know, it's hard to be in a refugee camp in America. And he looked up and he said, is this a refugee camp? We looked outside and it was raining. It was a September, early September day. And we looked outside and there were these kids. One of them were, was wearing a garbage bag, a plastic garbage bag. And she was skipping down the sidewalk. And I, and I said, yeah, I think, <laughs> I think so. I guess that's the definition. Yeah. So the early experience was a sense of, you know, trying to find purpose, trying to find out what to do. And then I, I think, you know, we just, just hunkered down. We said, okay, they need everything. People need to understand what does it mean to have an immigration status? And, the, you know, people would say things like green card was like, you know, it's not so easy to get a green card. So we did a series of presentations to be as clear as possible to provide information, even though the information was changing. One of the things I was so touched was Afghans recognized that they needed to help each other. And from the very first presentation, we had one professional translator. Uh, many of them had come from the Afghan American community, people who'd been here before, but he had to translate two languages simultaneously. So the presenter would speak and then 
person would translate the two languages. And we had a gentleman from the audience said, well, I'll translate one of the language. So that was my first experience. We're going to have to help each other out here, you know. And that's what I found all the way through that the Afghan community itself, because so many of the people are professionals, so many of the people have education, so many of the people have a lot of experience already working with international organizations, with American organizations, with the military while they were in Afghanistan. They recognized that they needed to be engaged. And so at some point, our legal clinic, there were just people walking in and they'd say, what do you need help? And I'd say, well, you please, please help. We, we need this document translated for this person. And they said, fine. And they could easily do that. Or, well, could you explain to this guest what he does need to do or does not need to do? Or could you tell me? you know, really what the real problem is this. So they could bring their cultural knowledge. I wouldn't necessarily understand the context that we'd be speaking about. Because, you know, I had to learn so much about the context of Afghanistan, which I'd only ever heard about peripherally as something happening in our American current history for the last 20 years. And still, I, I still don't know that I understand it. Of course, it takes, I was, I'm not an expert in the area, but I think it took a long time for me to begin to understand what this means, what that potentially means. Folks, we're speaking with Sahar Taman today for Spirit in Action. She's just come off of, about a month ago, a really intense experience of welcoming people who've had to flee Afghanistan. She worked with them at Fort McCoy here in Wisconsin. We've had her before on Spirit in Action, but we've had a lot of guests in the past 16 and a half years that we've been doing this program. You can find them all on northernspiritradio.org, and we'll include some links to some of the people that Sahar has worked with, the refugees, the agencies. So you can find that if you come to northernspiritradio.org. You'll find that also for all our guests the past 16 and a half years. There's a place for you to post comments. We really do love two-way communication. You can help out by doing your bit. Post a comment when you visit. There's also a place to support us if you click donate. That's on our website. Even more so, I want to encourage you to, to support your local media. Specifically, I'm thinking of community radio stations. There are some 42 stations that carry Northern Spirit radio programs nationwide in the U.S., and they're bringing you a slice of news that you just don't get on the mainline stations, stuff that's in touch with the roots in the community. I'm speaking with Sahar. I've known her father first. I met him, I don't know what it was, 20 years ago or something. I met him and considered him a friend and then got to know Sahar because she's doing such wonderful work as well. So the fact that I get to welcome Sahar today in person is because we're in the same community and your community radio stations can provide that kind of glimpse into the world. It's important not just to have the big ideas around the world, but to have the local roots, the ground in which they can grow. So please support your local community radio station. Again, Sahar is here. We have links that will relate to the various works that Sahar has done. And I want to talk a little bit later about the Mahmoud S. Taman Foundation. We'll, we'll talk about that. That's Her father's name was Mahmoud, and a really fine man he was. So we're talking again. You've welcomed people. You've probably had your mind altered several times over each day. One of the points I don't think you mentioned is, I think this was done pro bono on your part, or maybe Sahar Taman was on somebody's payroll. I don't know. Did you just take all this chunk of your life and say, here's the gift that I want to give you? So in, initially, I did come in as a volunteer. And then it was 
very clear that the legal clinic needed someone who was a committed person to manage it, to develop it. And so I was offered to be a consultant to the clinic. So I was contracted to the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishop. But the legal clinic relied on volunteers, pro bono attorneys, and other legal professionals. So this started by us doing a recruitment. We need help. Please come. You can come for any period of time. And we found people writing and saying, we can come for a week. We can come from two weeks. They came from all over the country. Some of them were private practitioners. They left their practice to do that. One woman said, I'm a product of what happened. I came here as a baby when my parents fled from Vietnam. I'm really here to give back. And we had a couple of people who had just come in a sense of, I need to return a service that was done for me. We also had a lot of Wisconsin lawyers because they could come within an hour or so. A lot of people would come on a regular basis. Some of them were not immigration attorneys, but were willing to learn, uh, willing to learn a particular, let me become an expert in this area as much as I can, and I'll be able to assist doing presentations. Then we, we really did need to talk with people a lot, individual consultations. We really needed to hear stories and, and read their stories and understand their stories and help them record their stories for the immigration purposes. So I don't want to get too technical, but ultimately the Afghan parolees, the Afghan guests generally will have two options. They were granted parole status or humanitarian parole. They were granted that parole as they entered. It's port parole. And that parole is a non-immigrant status. So they can stay for two years from the date of entry. But a non-immigrant status in order to stay longer requires that they do another step. And one of those steps is to apply for an asylum, claiming that they cannot return to their country. Or there is another option for some of them who are eligible for a special immigrant visa program that was created by Congress in 2009. And those were people who had an affiliation with the U.S. government. They'd worked with the government or the military, or they'd worked with contractors. So there was a group of people that have that option, and there are a group of people that needed to apply for asylum. It took us a while to figure that out. The individuals that had to apply for asylum had to make a claim explaining why they couldn't return to their country because they had been persecuted or they fear they will be persecuted if they return. And it's based on their five bases that whether you'd be persecuted because of your race, religion, nationality, your political opinion, or that you are part of a particular visible social group, a member of a particular social group. And so we started to hear our guests' stories and to say to them, well, why do you think that you need to stay in the United States and why couldn't you go back? And anybody in immigration who works with specifically asylum, you have to hear a lot of hard stories. It's not the same as someone, I'm coming here because my husband is sponsoring me. I, I recently got married. It's a very different type of, of story. And I think, um, well, I don't know what to tell you. I mean, you just realized how much unnecessary pain people experience in their lives. You know, people who will say, I come from a particular ethnic group, and there are several of them, that has historically discriminated and persecuted in Afghanistan, particularly by terrorist organizations, specifically now the Taliban or, or other of the international terrorist groups. 
And they spent a lifetime of discrimination, especially in the last 20 years, avoiding being bombed, living in an area where I, I know that if I lived in this area, anything could happen. Oh, you know, so many stories. It's not just one ethnic group. You know, it's very important that when we look at a situation, we understand complexity in Afghanistan. So one of the things I've seen is people say, well, the, the Hazara population are those who are the ethnic group that are historically discriminated. That's not true. We had to learn a lot. You know, there are other ethnic groups. For example, the Tajik group, people who have come from the Tajik tribe, they also spent years in opposition to the policies and ideology, the mentality of the Taliban. And just for that alone, there's an idea that, well, you're, you're originally from Tajikistan, you have to go back. And there's not this recognition that, you know, our world really has no borders. Those are artificially created and that you are a person indigenously from that land. You may have roots somewhere else or you may not. You may actually have been there for centuries, your family. It sounds so complex, and it actually, I imagine it pulls the heartstrings every day. The technical knowledge is one part of it, but this human compassion that you have to carry is another thing. It's been more than a month since that work finished, or at least finished to some degree. <laughs> How's your heart doing today? This is a, a time for processing. I have learned that when you're involved in such intense activity, that there is a time of grief after this event closed. And now we're on to the whatever those next steps are, which are actually pretty complicated. So this is my time of processing. And I look back at some of the mistakes I made or sometimes in reflection of also what I learned. I'll give you an example. Because so many people came and so many of them were people who are preliterate. This is a word I learned there. I learned a lot of terms of respect, you know, so preliterate, those without ability to read or write in any language. So many of them did not have education, people who had limited skills in terms of working in our current world. So I made a lot of my own judgments. So there was this idea among people at the, in the task force, oh, a lot of people shouldn't be here. They just got on a plane. And I kind of maybe had a piece of that in my heart. So there was a woman, one of the guests, who's an older woman. She would keep coming to our program. So I said we did presentations. And at one point, we did workshops. And at one point, we did training of the trainers. And people were hungry to learn. And we just offered everything we could. And she kept coming to this. And, and she was preliterate. And every time I would speak with her, I'd be a little frustrated because she didn't have the proper paperwork. And she'd say, I'll come back again. And and then at one point I said, well, you know, uh, Hanum, Hanum is, means um, Madame, why don't you just sit down? And so I sat down with her and an interpreter and I asked her, why did she come? She told me the story that about 15 years ago, during the time when the United States and the international world were trying to do a lot of uh, development in Afghanistan, job development, you know, building careers for women. She had learned of an institute called the Kabul School of Beauty. And she wanted to get to, you know, raise her status. She said we were very poor. So she wanted to study there. So she did get in. She got her certificate. She was trained as an esthetician. It's a cosmetology school. And after that, she was able to own a salon. She had a partner and they owned the salon and she hired her daughter and she hired her niece and they all got the proper education and training to do that. They were in Kabul, the capital, and they would be invited to or, or hired to go and 
for weddings. And these, and these weddings are, you know, women only weddings and men only weddings. And uh, they go for the wedding and do the work, the makeup, the hair. And, and I said to her, so were you persecuted for being in this profession? And she said, no, I was in Kabul. And at that time, you know, with the assistance of the US, you know, their presence there, we felt we had a democratic Afghanistan and these things that should happen. And I, and I said, well, what about now? She said, well, the, the Taliban have occupied the country and they have this ideology that women who do this or, or own a salon or especially since we go to these hotels and she says, they think this type of work is prostitution. And so I sat and cried and the interpreter also who was a woman and then she cried and I helped this woman write her story so that she can then make her claim for asylum that I will be persecuted if I return for these reasons. And so, you know, what I've been thinking in the last few days is, you know, how wrong I was to go around with this judgment that this person doesn't have a right because I didn't give them a chance. You know, it's, uh, it's hard. I'm a little hard on myself. I think it's just fortuitous that I took the time to say, okay, I've got to figure out what's going on here. But what if I hadn't done that, you know? Well, Sahar, with each story you tell, I see a little bit more of both the pain, the grief that you've had to go through, but also the depth of strength that you've been building for yourself and sharing with others in doing your work. Sahar Taman's here today for Spirit in Action, folks. Our website, northernspiritradio.org, you'll find some links that'll help you connect with these Afghan guests and the various work that's been done relative to them continues, and Sahar actually still continues to do some such work, uh, even here in Eau Claire. I hadn't mentioned before, but there were a number of groups that gathered together to sponsor incoming guests that some of the Afghans who needed a place to locate so that they didn't live in a military barracks for the rest of their life. They've gone to many different cities and towns all around the United States. Fort McCoy, Wisconsin, which is where Sahar Taman was helping out, is about 90 miles from here. And so Eau Claire received uh, first originally 10, and then it was eight of the guests who landed here. But they needed help to land and so the Quaker meeting I'm part of, Eau Claire Friends meeting, was one along with the local Lutherans and local uh, Unitarian Universalists and many other people. They've, they've all banded together to help provide a welcoming. As a matter of fact, we call it welcoming new neighbors is what we call our organization. I haven't been working directly with them. My wife has, and so have six other people from the local Quaker meeting. That's one part of the transition that you've been helping with, Sahar, is to get people out of this military camp. 13,000 people there. Where do they go? So eight of them land in Eau Claire. How do you do that kind of transition? And what was your part in it? So there are resettlement agencies throughout the United States. We actually have, as you know, we're a country of immigrants, and we have somewhere around 100,000 refugees that come to the United States in a very different way than the Afghan, the recent Afghan population. So there are resettlement agencies whose work is to resettle our immigrants, our refugees. A refugee status means that all of the legal work, all of the processing work has been done before the refugee arrived in the United States. So it's just a matter of when they come here, doing the very hard work of setting families up, helping them, as we all know, the immigration, the immigrant process, deciding 
if they want to work, putting children in school. So resettlement agencies have this experience and expertise. I will tell you that, like you said earlier, under the Trump administration, the resettlement agencies, you know, their budgets had been really gutted. And so they had reduced capacity and, and there were reduced number of refugees coming. However, this new group of people, you know, is here, is here all at once. You know, it's not like we're getting a family this month and another family. It's just a lot of people. And the legal requirement for immigration is new. That is not a piece that they are familiar with or, or was historically. So the le this is the part I, I am involved with. I want to tell you that the Eau Claire Welcoming New Neighbors Coalition is amazing. Generosity pouring out from people of all kinds, very sincere, wanting to figure out what we can do to help these new neighbors. I swear from what I've seen from Eau Claire, probably you could have helped with the resettlement of 13,000 people. It has been so <laughs> gracious and so kind and so well organized. So I want to thank you. I know your wife is involved and so many of the other leaders in the community who were able to put this together. So all I'm doing is working with some other people with um, legal skills. Lori Osborne is one of the volunteers that came to the legal clinic on a regular basis. She's an attorney. She was the managing regional attorney for the Wisconsin Public Defender's Office, the Eau Claire office, for many years, I think 20 some years. And she recently retired and she had been coming to the legal clinic. And so she's here in Eau Claire. And I said, would you would you, would you participate in this project, how we can assist our new neighbors? And also Dave Anderson, who is among the WNN volunteers. He has legal experience. He has a partially accredited representative to the DHS to be able to work in immigration. So we've been meeting. We've got to strategize and sort of re-strategize and assess, but we're doing what we can, as well as you know many other people doing <laughs> things. But the, on the larger picture, there are lots of technical legal issues. There are deadlines to meet. There's not enough immigration attorneys. There are not enough pro bono because many of the Afghan neighbors do not have resources, meaning there are people who had money in a bank who have no access to it. There are people whose properties were confiscated by the Taliban. You know, it's just enormous material loss. But I want to tell you Another thing I saw is there wasn't a sense of regret of that loss. The Afghan community that I saw were so gracious, so grateful, so relieved in many ways. One of the gentlemen who was um, an Afghan guest who would come to the legal clinic every morning with his briefcase and sat down and just, he just treated like a job, unpaid job, but he treated uh, very respectfully. He said he had two cars, they're gone. His wife and children are still there. They've had to move out of their home. There's not anything left. But he said when he was resettled, he said, you know, I used to go to the, try to have a picnic in the park and we'd be terrified what would happen. Would there be violence that we would experience? And he said, where I am now, like, there's a university across the street. You know, there are beautiful people, a beautiful apartment building. And there's a park across the street where people play soccer every day. There's peace. So that's really, you know, what I saw, a sense of gratefulness for just having safety and the stuff that we, <laughs> we, we take. We take it for granted way too much. <laughs> too much. There's some of the specific, sometimes they're problems, sticking points, just different ways of experiencing them. For one thing, Sahar, since you're Muslim, you have some knowledge about one piece of our Afghan new neighbors of their experience 
or at least some inkling of it, something that I, having been raised Catholic and now Quaker, I don't have. Is that one of the reasons this became your area of incredible pro bono service? I mean, I think you're in some ways, again, as I said earlier, in Spirit and Action, you're uniquely suited. You've gone through your various careers leading up to this. But your religion, again, as a Muslim, you understand some things that I wouldn't understand. Maybe language, does that help at all? I'd say that having Muslim culture, there's a lot of commonality among all Muslim cultures, you know, understanding of what the prayer times are. Okay, I understand why people need to leave in the middle of this presentation now because we timed it at an incorrect time. So let us reorganize it so it doesn't put people in a position where they would have to miss prayer, things like that, practical things. On another level, it was, you know, I want to show respect and respect might mean the way I greet you. Respect might mean the way I would sit across from you. Respect might mean the way I ask you a particular question type of thing. So those things were natural, came rather natural to me. The other part of it is there's a sense of I'm among, you know, my people. And I think it really has to do with the way you think about the other. So we would have people coming into a very small spaces, asking questions. They were people who spoke other languages, they were diff dressed differently, look differently. And for most of our American volunteers, the attorneys and, and others, they just sort of fit right in. Okay. None of that was something that scared them or phased them. It was just sort of, you know, hey, I'm at home here. This is part of my larger extended family, my larger extended clients. For people who could not or did not have that capacity to easily adjust, it was hard. Most of those people were not in the legal clinic, but there were people who would come and they'd be really scared to talk to another person because of the headdress that they wore, you know, or their, I mean, it looked that way to me. I have to be fair. I can't say that the person said, I'm really scared of that person because of this, but it looked that way to me. There would be a sort of a deer in the headlights kind of look and they sort of have to leave quickly. I saw that to some degree throughout my time at Fort McCoy. It wasn't from American soldiers, by the way. Our American soldiers, most of them have that international experience. They've been in other places. Maybe our country shouldn't have put them in some of those places, but at least there was, you know, always I saw a great sense of comfort and respect. So going back to was I situated? I don't think I was uniquely situated. I think the fact that when we share a Muslim background, that took me 60% ahead in terms of uh, cultural issues. Um, I know not to do this or should do this or not do that. The other part of it, I think, has to do with, you know, who you are and how you see the rest of the world. And that wasn't just me. It was many, many other people. I think people are amazing, those who just sort of extend themselves and, and come up and say, I'm, I'm going to be part of this and need help. I'm just, it was my other lesson. You just learned how big people's hearts can be enormous, you know. There are some issues with respect to women that are different in mainline U.S. society uh, laws. Polygamy is illegal here, and it isn't in Afghanistan, I believe. Uh, my understanding is, and I could be wrong, so correct me when I am, that in Muslim practice, you can have up to four wives in some situations. And there's conditions. It's not like every man gets four wives or anything like that. It's actually a little bit exceptional that one can afford to have extra wives. There might be some of our Afghan guests who come who actually have multiple wives. 
what do they have to do? Do they have to? I've, that one boggles my imagination because if you've been married with someone and now the laws of where you live say you can't do that, wow, that's one thing. The rights of women, likewise, are different here. I, in the U.S., until you know, 100, 150 years ago, women were property of men. We look aghast at it now. But it wasn't that long ago that for everyone here, our ancestors had that way. I'm not sure what kind of cultural issues like that are being brought from Afghanistan. What have you experienced? What have you seen? Yeah, thank you for this question. So this is a really large discussion, but I think I have a particular perspective. So for me, I'm going to start with the premise that women have equal rights and more can in some cases more rights under Islamic law. So what is the religion teaches, what our religion teaches is that women are equal to men before God and in their rights. What that translates to in real life is not, <laughs> it's not always the case, you know, and there are many reasons for this. You can see in the United States, you know, we have all kinds of social issues, but as to be expected in the rest of the world. What I saw was I saw many women very interested in empowering other women, specifically the Afghan women here. Okay. That comes in with the presumption that they're not empowered already. So we're on the wrong step right there. Second of all, it doesn't take a look at not just the culture, the reality on the ground. So for example, people came in was mostly men and they had the passports. They're the one who had the IDs. They're the one who had the documents. They're the ones who were asking the questions. So we were not ignoring women. Okay. We spoke to every woman that came in, but the practicality of it is people would come in. It would be the man who was trying to transact whatever business needed. In many cases that were very large families, the women were with their children, many, many, sometimes very large children, they were taking care of them. So how do you empower women? Okay. Is something I think about a lot. I think women empower themselves and they empower themselves because of the opportunities that we have in the United States. So while I felt at Fort McCoy that many women were in their traditional roles. Many of them walked out without knowing what's the next step that they have to do. But also the men were in this pretty much the same position. They also didn't know exactly what happened. But what I think will happen is in the United States, you put your children in school and all of a sudden you get a call from the teacher and you start talking to the teacher and you get involved in your child's education and you realize that you have to assist your child in this direction or they need. This is a type of empowerment that I think women who have traditionally had roles start to step into and then they start to realize that they too are participating. It's in perhaps in a different way. And then, you know, as we see it, women will start getting jobs, there will be contributors, financial contributors, in addition to all the other contributions. So I just really look at this picture as long term. People coming from immigrant societies where things are not the way they are here, it just takes time. I am very hopeful that women will play the roles that they want to, they choose to in their lives, and men will just like any husband and wife team or whatever couple there needs to, there has to, people have to find their balance and, you know, relationships are very complex. So I'm very, very hopeful about that. So in terms of polygamy, now we're kind of going back now to a legal issue here, if nothing else. So I cannot address 
the literature on polygamy in Islam. It's a huge discussion, debate, what is actually said in the Quranic verse that people interpret as to say that. But we can say interpretations go from you can have four wives to, well, you can have a wife if you can take care of her, another wife, to, well, you can have another wife if you can take care of her, but, you know, you really can't take care of her because that's actually what is said in the Quran, to complete reasoning in this day and age, you cannot have four wives. So like I said, there is the concept of qiyas, which is reasoning in Islamic law or Islamic jurisprudence, and that's the, the spectrum. In terms of actual law, in some countries, some countries that have a predominant Muslim majority do not allow polygamy. In some countries, it is allowed, I'm talking about the, the actual civil laws, we'll state this, it is allowed with permission of the other wife. So in order to address polygamy in Islam, we need like hours and hours and people who know what they're talking about, <laughs> as opposed to me. Polygamy is not allowed in the United States under federal law. What the requirement is that when you enter the United States, you will not continue to practice polygamy. So a person is not inadmissible because they themselves have been in a polygamous relationship. It is what will they continue to do when they are in the United States. And the government, the State Department has published policy as to when people, some of our Afghan neighbors are in the United States and they happen to have what they consider their two wives with them. The first wife will be the one that is recognized as part of the marriage. And the second wife will not be considered. But if there are children probably oftentimes from that second relationship. So that person, that woman and her children are also entitled to be resettled, not necessarily, cannot be in the same home, but maybe in another facility. But the children are all the children of the, of the man. So a man may have four children from one wife and three children from other. All seven children are his children. So children are recognized. It's the second marriage that's not recognized. So that's sort of from the legal perspective. And it's very complex. I'm, I'm sure the details that are underneath that statement you just gave are myriad, and probably you have to have a separate law degree just to be able to deal with it. But I appreciate the fact that you've had to be able to try and face people wherever they're coming from as they arrive from Afghanistan. Folks, we certainly have bonus excerpts from this interview that will not fit in our 55-minute program. They will be on northernspiritradio.org. Uh, there is one thing that I still have to ask you about that is very important to me personally, again, because I did know your father, Mahmoud S. Taman, and the Mahmoud S. Taman Foundation continues after his death, though these years now. And you are the executive director. Sahar Taman is executive director, two of your siblings, I think, three, maybe are, are on the board. Tom Chisholm, another person who I've interviewed for Spirit in Action, he's on the board. And Chris Meyer. And Chris Meyer, who's been a friend in connection. Actually, I met him first through computer programming consulting way back in the day. And I've stood as part of the Third Friday Peace Stand with him many times as well. Would you describe for our Spirit in Action listeners what the work is of the Mahmoud Estaman Foundation? So the Mahmoud Estaman Foundation is a private foundation. It is a 501c3, but a, fi a private foundation. I was created by my father, and the intent is to 
be able to assist community initiatives, whatever is happening locally in our community and sometimes in international perspective, but really these sort of small grassroots effort that people need a little bit of funding in order to get a project done or start an initiative. And so we have really been blessed that since 2009, which is I think 12 years ago, we have been able to provide funds to six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 different organizations a year. I think we have probably $110,000 that uh, we have provided funds for grants for in those uh, time period, maybe, maybe $120,000. The goal is that small things are often the most impactful and local, something on the ground. Uh, somebody has the idea and they don't necessarily we need to go through a large grant, you know, writing process. It's sort of like, well, this is what I want to do. And could you assist me? And we try to make that whole process uh, as easy as possible. I mean, locally, we've been very happy to support organizations such as yours, the Northern uh, Spirit Radio. We have assisted with institutions that consist here like the community table, but also there have been small initiatives just getting started. I think there's a tiny house project in Chippewa Falls and they're just getting started. So we were able to provide them a little bit of funding. One of the international projects we recently supported was a gentleman who was a Peace Corps volunteer in Kyrgyzstan. When he was there, he realized that the English dictionaries that were being used by the students to learn English, and we're talking elementary school students, were actually Russian to English and not Kyrgyz to English. So he asked if we could assist him in providing dictionaries that were Kyrgyz English so that these students in, in the school that he had been associated with could learn English. So that was a, a wonderful activity. So in Richmond, Virginia, there was one of the earlier initiatives to create basically these food pantries, outdoor food pantries, where a refrigerator is located in a neighborhood and neighbors basically stock the food within the, within the refrigerator and it's replenished by neighbors. Sometimes it's replenished by local organizations and they're outdoor and accessible to, to anyone who needs that. And so we were able to assist that, the one in RVA, R Richmond, Virginia, getting started. It's really been an honor to be able to do this work. Well, I'm very thankful for the work of the Mahmoud Estaman Foundation, your work as executive director there, your work with the Religion and Society Exchange, the Interfaith Prayer for Peace and Unity, the work that you've supported in so many ways, and then, of course, welcoming our new Afghan neighbors, the guests that you've helped provide so much inspiration for. So many ways you've been doing good. I just say go forth and do more and just carry with you the gratitude of myself and so many people for your work. Thanks so much, Sahar. Thank you very much, Mark. I consider it just an honor to be able to do any of the things that I've done and then be given whatever facility and faculty I've had to do that. I'm really very grateful. And folks, as I said earlier, there's going to be bonus excerpts and a full length, uh, not just 55 minute program that will be on northernspiritradio.org. Listen to those bonus excerpts on our site. Follow the links that we'll give you to the work that's being done with our new Afghan guests. And join us next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on northernspiritradio.org. 
guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice, with every song, we will move this world along, and our lives will feel the echo of our healing.